Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Bonus seven. Seven. Did you know that in German, Sieben is seven? That was my maiden name. Oh. You know? <laughs> yeah, don't care. Anyway. Okay. So we're going to just recap you know, all of the journal article stuff updates from last week because Kirk kind of lost his train of thought when I totally went off on a bizarre tangent. So yeah. anyway, first study by Long. That's an easy one. Long et al. from Nature Medicine. So they looked at viral shedding about a, a, in a group of 37 asymptomatic patients and they fa- compared to symptomatic patients. And asymptomatic... In, in, Start over. Asymptomatic. I can't even <laughs> say that word. Asymptomatic individuals. That's because no one believes that there's actually asymptomatic individuals. Anyway. Darn the who. Down. Yeah, anyway. Um, they were more likely to have a, a reduction in neutralizing antibody levels. So basically, if you have an asymptomatic infection or even a mild infection, you're just not going to have that good antibody response, especially with these neutralizing antibody levels. Yeah. And your chance of, you know, seroconverting and all of that... Not going to happen. Yeah, and basically they're saying, listen, this data suggests that these asymptomatic people, they get a weaker immune response. They're like Dr. Bell, just weak and just nothing <laughs> yeah. happens. And they and this could have some implications really when you look forward at the kind of these immunity strategies and serologic surveys. So, you know, yeah, a lot of people might get it. They're relatively asymptomatic, but can they get it again? Well, we've seen it. And you just really sounded smart there. I was a little bit shocked. Yeah, it was I was anyway. all over that. So, and then, uh, I don't even know how you say this one. It's just X-U. Zoo? Zoo. Not who. At Al. And we've seen this dude before, but of course, they don't put his first name, so it could be... A different a, one. A different one. But he had a little thing about these transmission clusters uh, from 1,400 different transmission pairs in China. And they identified 34 of these people as super spreaders and five super spreader events that uh, occurred within households. Oh, wrong button. <laughs> That's what that sounded like. Five super spreaders. <laughs> yeah, five super spreaders. And uh, basically, they they kind of looked at all this and they said that basically the risk of being infected outside of households was higher for those who are 18 to 64. So that would be both of us. And, uh, <laughs> Isn't that great? You actually fit in the same age demographic. We're in the same age demographic. Only for the, the next five years. Yeah, whereas the risk of being <laughs> infected within households was actually higher for younger and older people. So that would be under 18 and the old people, which are over 64. The Medicare population. Yep. So you're not Medicare yet, but you do get the AARP. <laughs> not going to talk about it. <laughs> anyway, so yes, uh, just in really the, the whole how many days to, to infection and symptom onset was the same basically for both. Um, so <laughs> next next. I could just leave you muted. Next journal, Clinical Infectious Diseases. Chook at all? Yeah. Anyway, he did a study looking at posterior oropharyngeal saliva samples compared to nasopharyngeal samples. And this is kind of the thing. And we talked about this yesterday with, like, you know, one of our nearby communities is doing a lot more oral swabs rather than the nasopharyngeal swabs. Yeah. And 
why and what do you tell patients? Well, what I can tell you is that the oral pharyngeal saliva are not as good. To be clear, if I see somebody like spitting into a little vial to collect saliva, it just makes me gag. But, but how do you know it's a posterior oral pharyngeal saliva? Like, yeah, they just oh, take that. They had a hockalooey. No, they just, <laughs> just tickle back there. So, but anyway, yeah, it's not as accurate. That's that's the moral of the story. That's the moral of the it story. It might feel more comfortable, but it's not as accurate. And then we had a whole bunch of ones we didn't want to talk about, all the way down to Clark at L. No. Is there another one I'm missing? Oh, you're right. Woo at L. There's two Woo at L's yeah. back. In, I wonder if and it's again, the same person. Yeah, and Woo just keeps popping up every week. Um, the other one was Zoo, XU. Yeah. yeah, but this guy's. It could be a girl. This girl. So anyway, there's identification and validation of novel clinical signature to predict the prognosis in confirmed COVID-19 patients, clinical infectious diseases. And basically what they did is they looked at five indicators, and those indicators were not necessarily in any particular order, uh, neutrophil count, lymphocyte count, procalcitonin, older age, and that's probably like 65 and older, and C-reactive protein. Uh, and they looked at 270 patients with who actually had COVID. And they showed, they truly showed this, that combined predictive ability of these signatures surpassed the use of each of the five indicators alone, which you'd expect. Well, know. you would. But hmm. that just goes to show that you really should order more tests than, you know, a CBC. Yeah, but they said basically you can get these five things and it's a pretty good risk assessment of whether you should be monitoring them and being really careful. Well, then, again, Wu also had this article. It could be somebody totally different. He's really busy. Clinica Chimica Acta. I don't have a clue. I get the magazine, but I I can't remember. (laughs) Can't remember how to say it. Anyway, this this is something that was a little bit more of a one of those rumors way back, you know, at the beginning beginning of COVID. But he now looked at 187 patients with COVID compared to 1991 without it, just basic controls at this one hospital in China. The data showed that blood group A had an increased risk for COVID, you know, odds ratio 1.54, whereas blood group O was associated with a decreased risk, 0.65. So I'm not looking as good at this point. I have no idea what my blood type is. I think it's Z. Is there a supplement? Zoonotic? (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea, but I have got to find it. I've got it somewhere, at least to know whether I've got a chance. Um, so then we went to Clark et al., which I almost tried to do early. And uh, this is actually uh, kind of interesting because they looked at this uh, large, two large multimorbidity studies. And they estimated that 1.7 billion people, that the prevalence of COVID comprised 22%. No. Hold it. No. You're right. That if 1.7 billion people, which is 22% of the world population. How did I miss that? Anyway, 22% have one underlying health condition that I, puts them at risk for severe COVID. I, I got to change my glasses. Just one second. <laughs> yeah. So again. so really interesting that, that they have one. But, you know, if you think about it, and they talked a little bit about the this increased risk was highest in, obviously, countries that older people. Uh, and some of the African countries with high HIV and AIDS prevalence. And then you've got these small islands where there's a high incidence of diabetes. 
So I've been to the Marshall Islands, which is a small, high diabetic island. Did you become diabetic? I didn't, but they do like a lot of diabetes studies there. They eat a lot of spam. Like that's literally what they eat. That comes from Austin, Minnesota. It does. That's where the uh, that band came from too, from Austin. Johnny Holmes? No, never mind. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. But anyway, I found the number 22% a little bit low in my head that only 22% of the whole world's population would actually have a high risk. But then if you're counting like every child who doesn't have a high risk condition, it makes sense. But yes. Anyway, moving on. Baker, Baker at L, American Journal of Public Health. They looked at... Basically, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they actually found that 75%, which is 1.8 million U.S. workers, are actually employed in occupations that you cannot do from home. So the whole let's all work from home thing, 75% of people can't. And this is jobs like healthcare, manufacturing, retail, food services. These also are in, you know, jobs that tend to have a little bit lower pay, have a little bit more high stress. And then these are the people who have increased rates of COVID because they have to like work from not at home. And so it's just an interesting way of putting it. Who's at risk? There's it's so many multifactorial things. It is. It is. So also, interesting. 75% just is like astronomical to me. It is. So then Lay et al. L-A-I. This was actually uh, in JAMA. JAMA cardiology. Yeah, it's big time. So they actually did something in New York City. Don't mess this one up. Yeah. This one's complicated. Now the pressure's on. Uh, So basically what they did is they they looked at out-of-hospital cardiac arrests and and the paramedics whipping in and taking care of these people this year compared to last year. And when you looked at how many times they showed up in somebody who uh, had a cardiac arrest or death, out of hospital, out of hospital, or death. it was four point seven five million in the U.S. versus one point five nine million last year, and I think a lot of people have talked about this how no one wants to go to the ER, and uh, of course the, these arrests were associated with well older age and by arrest he means cardiac, yeah, yeah, uh, non-white uh, race, and then uh, you know people with hypertension, diabetes, all of the normal things that we would see with heart disease, but. And Again, risk. it's like three times higher than the year before because no one wanted to go in. And there is another study coming up later in the week, which makes you really think about it, especially when you're doing primary care. So we'll get to that. So we're moving on Tuesday. Luing, Luing, L-E-U-N-G in Nature Medicine Journal. This, looking at surgical masks, reducing proportion of droplets and aerosols. This is that whole thing, wear a mask, wear a mask. Everybody should wear a mask in public. We wore a mask yesterday at a wedding, or mask yesterday at a wedding. Um, basically, that they're finding is that the virus is detected in 30 to 40% of droplets aerosolized, just even in the droplets, if you're not wearing a mask, versus 0% detection of both droplets and aerosols for people randomized to wear a surgical mask. Mm-hmm. So, interestingly, the mask also prevented or, you know, helped prevent against seasonal influenza, but does not do anything for the common cold. Rhinovirus. Rhinovirus. But I just, 0%. Well, next we're going to look from the Environmental Pollution Journal. 
And uh, this was actually by Karaturo. 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 At Al. And uh, this is kind of interesting because it's still, I think, we've been doing this for a lot of weeks. And it's like, can you get this from touching something that is metal (laughs) or plastic or... Uh, a fomite, a fomite. A fomite. If you're going to get gas, are you going to get coronavirus? Um, and so basically what they did is they uh, they were checking the survival uh, on, you know, whether it was on contaminated food, inanimate surfaces, water, wastewater, sludge, biosolid waste contaminated, uh, contaminated by feces. And they noted that while transmission risk may be higher for some occupational groups, of course, the wastewater people and treatment workers, um, you know, the appropriate PPE would probably be helpful. But otherwise, you know, the survival of the virus is likely to be low. And Although there is another study coming up. I know that doesn't say almost the same thing at all. So, oh, right. you know, so we'll have to see. I'm not sure what to do. Urgh. I got to quit. I got to spray my hands down every 30 seconds. Yes. Okay. Preprint here. Um, we we felt super obligated to talk about this, even though it is a preprint, just because it is kind of one of the big deals right now. Horby et al. Um, looked at this is that whole randomized recovery trial. So recovery is all in caps locks. Looking at mortality in patients with oral dexamethasone, and they did find reduced mortality among patients treated with oral dexamethasone. They had a lower rate of death by 28 days um, than those in the control arm. By 17%. By 17%, excuse me. Strongest effect <clears throat> in patients who were receiving ventilator support, invasive mechanical ventilation, followed by patients just getting oxygen without the invasive mechanical ventilation. But there was a lot of non-significant findings in this study as well. And again, this is a preprint, but... The dexamethasone is still looking a little promising. Yeah. I mean, I would like something where it said like 98% were helped and they all became Nobel Peace Prize winners. Um, 17% doesn't seem huge. No. Uh, I'm Unless you're that 17%. <laughs> That's right. If you get if you get it and you're part of that 17%, it was a winner. You are the Nobel Peace Prize but winner. I, but I just think, gosh, you know, it's not the, not the best, biggest number there. All right, so moving on to a retrospective cohort study. It was actually in uh, the Journal of Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndromes just this last June, June 2020. And basically they took, uh, they did a study that was matched 21 HIV positive COVID patients and 42 HIV negative COVID patients. Uh, They were hospitalized in New York. And uh, interestingly, there's not a huge difference between how they did and and actually, those with uh, HIV co-infection had kind of a non-significant risk of uh, changes on CT, ICU admissions, mechanical ventilation, death or transfer, to hospice, and uh, their peak values for most inflammatory markers were not significantly different. Different. Now they were a little different, but it was a small study, so they were not clinically significant. Yeah, so it'll be interesting if they keep looking at it. I mean, this statistically, kind of data. they were not statistically significant. Right, twenty-one patients is not that many. So in the American Heart Journal by Braytech et al. multi-center study, looking at so this is this is where I, what I was alluding to here with this whole myocardial infarctions and out of hospital, blah, blah, blah. So again, they looked at um, what's happened to people and they found that patients admitted for acute coronary syndrome, so MI, I guess you could say, 
dropped by 41% during March and April of 2020 compared to 2019. And this, you know, again, semi-small numbers, end of 67 of this year versus 113 of last year. I mean, but that is that's a big difference statistically. Um, but they found that the greater proportion of patients with non-ST MIs presented greater than 24 hours after their symptoms started um, versus how they did in 2019. This was also significant. So they're basically people are waiting longer to go in or they're not going in at all. And so really to think about it, especially from a primary care perspective is, what does that mean for down the road? Because people are not getting the help they need. I mean, even if they survived this at-home heart attack, what does that mean for their heart function and all of that down the road? Are we going to have a lot more cardiac complications in our patients? Yeah. And moving on. So MMWR, 2020 June. So there was a little thing by Lang at Al, and they uh, – and this was more just observational that when they looked at the 10 weeks following COVID emergency declaration in the U.S., they kind of looked at what was happening in the ERs. And I, I don't think this is any surprise anybody that kind of wanders through their ER every once in a while. Maybe in the city you don't, but out here, yeah, we wander through. Um, and really what happened is, well, you know. <laughs> when just, you see someone wandering. You know, on their way to lunch. Oops, I'm in the ER. But uh, <laughs> declined. uh the heart attacks declined by 23%, the presentation of people coming in, 20% down for strokes, 10% for hypo, hyperglycemic crisis. Uh, and this was compared to the previous 10 weeks. And so the numbers were significantly down of people presenting to the ER with those problems. So, uh, And I think we all saw that. Mm -hmm. And so... It's again, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Anyway, that's it for that day. Moving yeah, on, moving 24th. On. So we're looking at MMWR, again, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. This is Lewis et al. Um, basically, <laughs> this is just fun. Looked at a college spring break, break trip to Cabo. I was on this trip, actually. So <laughs> You were supervising. Yeah. You were the grandpa they brought along just to make it look like they weren't being naughty. Anyway, so basically this March 14th to March 19th, this college spring break trip, 64 new cases, 60 cases among 183 vacation travelers, a lot of stuff. But what they found is that one-fifth of those who tested positive in this cohort of college students, one-fifth were asymptomatic at the time of testing. Now, they don't say where they tested the day they got back, where they tested, like, you know. So there was this whole week they were there, and so when they got tested isn't necessarily clear. But either way, one-fifth of the people who tested positive were asymptomatic. I'm, Very interesting. I'm a... I, this, there's got to be a lot of confounding things here as an addiction doctor. I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, you know, these people come back from spring break. And, you know, I've seen the movies. I know what happens. Because clearly and you never were there. <laughs> I was never there. It's too poor. But, uh, you know, what's... Or not cool. Uh, you know, withdrawal from uh, different substances can make you look pretty sick. and uh, Or can mask other symptoms. And can mask other symptoms. So, hey, I think uh, Lewis et al. should really kind of add something to that you know 19 people screened positive for a substance use disorder at the same time <laughs> due to their symptoms exactly okay anyway anyway next one emerging infectious diseases boris bermejo that's easier for you to say no it's not they're looking at nursing homes so residents and staff at 69 nursing homes in spain screened for sars cov2 in this two-week period in april 
24% of the residents, so 768 of them, 24% of them, and 15%, so 403 of the staff tested positive. Now, this is the best part. Again, I don't necessarily want to create a huge debate on is there asymptomatic COVID, but of all those that tested positive, 70% of the residents, so 24% of all residents, but 70% of those 24% were asymptomatic at the time of testing. And 56% of the staff were asymptomatic at the time of testing. And obviously these residents, they're the high-risk people. You're living in a nursing home. You're going to be a high-risk person probably for one or two dings at least. So for you to not have symptoms, like I'm on call and I get nursing home calls all the time. So for them to not have any symptoms is pretty remarkable. So I'm going to go on record saying... There's asymptomatic spread of COVID. Uh, two things. Number one, that was a great dramatic pause. <laughs> and <laughs> secondly, I remember uh, just to throw a little sunshine at Dr. Nasca. Uh, again, she said, uh, you know, asymptomatic meaning they're not complaining of anything, but do they have symptoms? That we that don't even so know our symptoms yet. Or we don't know their symptoms, or they don't really think of them as symptoms. So Wait a minute. What if they're just super demented and they're just, well, and again, they're out to lunch. Yeah, just, I mean, I think that, that again, uh, is everybody going to complain? So. so you're not going on the record? I'm not. So next. So you don't journal, believe in asymptomatic spread? Uh, it's all over. Uh, journal of Infection. Uh, Cent, Cento at Al, and he did a little thing on persistent positivity and fluctuations of SARS RNA in COVID patients. And they did a little thing where they took... Uh, or they found that 47% of 500 patients that were hospitalized with COVID still tested positive at symptom resolution. This is nothing new. We've heard this. Um, and and again, again, when they discharged these people, 14% were still positive at 14 days. We've heard that. Then, in addition, among patients who were retested following their first negative PCR test. So they got a negative. So they got a negative after they were discharged. Then a bunch of them were positive again within the first month of discharge. What does that mean? God knows. I don't know. I was like, did 91% of these, or did this whole group of 264 people who had a negative, was that a false negative then? Or was that, I mean, fascinating. It's been described, but it hasn't been explained. How's that? Makes me sound pretty smart. It does. It's like you've been talking with Dr. Shacker. Yeah. Shacker and I are like, you know, emailing. So- Schmidt et al. Schmidt et al. in plus one. Never heard of that one. Anyway, genomic evidence that, okay, now, Kurt, (laughs) I know you have some relatives. They've looked at, because the genomic genomic evidence of several species of savannah monkeys. Oh, they're cousins. (laughs) Are actually susceptible to SARS-CoV-2, same way as in humans. Mm. So... You know, there could be some bi-directional zoonotic transfer in the savannah monkey populations. So sometimes when I'm playing that little organ thing and the, I've got my savannah monkey with me, I could potentially get sick from that. Is that a savannah monkey or is that a, like jungle monkey? Because you got to make sure you know the Savannah difference. monkeys are more rural. <laughs> are you discriminating against us <laughs> rural folk? Yeah. But anyway, the, the whole purpose of this, yes, is obviously to watch the zoonotic transfer. So, you know, in zoos, but also because if... They're having very similar type reaction and, you know, susceptibility that that could definitely help when it comes to vaccines and therapy development. You know, it says here, 
This has implications of epidemic control in communities with frequent human and non-human primate interactions. I haven't been to any Minnesota towns where it's like, oh, they got a lot of monkeys here. It's like, we should really watch out. Although I was on a cruise and I was in, I'm not going to name the country, in the Caribbean, the island, and you get off the boat and they're like throwing monkeys at you. Oh. That's their way of making money because if they take, they throw the monkeys at you and then you get, they get mad if you don't pay for the picture that you, anyway. So it's picture monkeys. Yeah. I get it. But anyway. So moving on. Moving on. We should probably hurry up a little bit. Fernandez Cruz et al. from Antimicrobial Agents and Chemotherapy. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, which one are we on? <laughs> Fernandez. Oh, there we go. Yeah. I, I'm going to change back to my other glasses. Um, In a retrospective analysis, I'm just going to do this one for you so you can catch up. 463 hospitalized COVID patients found that the in-hospital mortality was lower among patients treated with steroids. Glucocorticoids, steroids. It, doesn't, it, that, it does say that. That sentence, the one that I just read just said steroids. So anyway, lower mortality... In patients who receive steroids versus not, glucocorticoid steroid treatment was associated with a 42% reduction in mortality. This is confusing to me because 42% reduction, and then you look at dexamethasone stuff, was 17% reduction in severe disease and in the people on vents. Yeah, this is, yeah, I mean, I think that it's like, this has got to be worked out because it's going to drive me crazy. Anyway, All right, let's move on, on to Madari Alga. I didn't say that correctly. No, you did not put that somewhere. This is a preprint, and actually, this is a little thing that they um, they did on convalescent plasma donors. Dr. Bell liked this one. I did. Uh, there were 103 convalescent plasma donors, and they had confirmed COVID-19 disease. And they found that, again, we've heard some of these things, that age, fever, absence of myalgia, fatigue, their blood type, hospitalization, were all associated with higher convalescent antibody titer. And again, I think we've seen that people but with milder disease. Absence of myalgia have higher titers. Yeah, but again. But that's fascinating to me. Okay. So but, you, you don't get anyway. achy. So anyway, yeah, that's the deal. And and again, some of the stuff we've seen, although we've seen a lot of stuff that says that people with mild disease get low levels. So severe, Bizarre. higher levels again. Move on to zoo. No, but L. I think the whole point, you just totally missed it. Was that the patients who received the convalescent plasma had increases in antibody levels, which you'd expect. So none of this is like earth shattering that we've, you know, not heard, but it's just the beginning, I think, of what's coming in the convalescent plasma research. So anyway, yes, Zoo et al. in Journal of Aging. So this is the one that's on Kurt's coffee table. And nightstand and dining room table in the big font. Anyway, so a meta-analysis... Found that the things that we already know, gender, advanced age, higher BMI, comorbidities, the diabetes, hypertension, yada, yada, all associated with higher risk of developing severe COVID. However, several lab measures are also associated with severe disease. High white blood count. So leukocytosis, high white count with a low lymphocyte count. Yeah, I think a lot of people. Times people look at the total white count and think, oh, it's 11,000. This isn't COVID. Right. But it can be. You got to look at the differential. So, lymphopenia, leukocytosis, low albumin, high ALT to AST ratio, elevated LDH, elevated CRP, and elevated creatinine kinase, all associated with more severe outcomes. Oh, and the lastly from this date, Lopez and Rodo, kind of like Frodo. Um, 
And so uh, this was the nature and human behavior. And I just found this interesting because it uh, they did this stochastic model, not sarcastic, stochastic model. I love it. Model of SARS-CoV-2 transmission. And this was developed by Lopez. And it suggests that these lockdowns should remain in place for at least 60 days. Yeah. I think they're finding that out down south. Uh, followed by a gradual reintroduction of the workforce. So you don't go from a little bit of a lockdown to like open every bar and every store because that doesn't turn out so well. And the authors, of course, found that social distancing, face mask, gloves, other individual protection measures have a, and I'm going to underline this word, massive impact. Well, let's underline both words, in reducing the current peak of active cases. So uh, this is not uh, earth-shattering, but it's something people should have listened to, what, about three weeks ago? So, anyway, anyway, moving on. Oh, that, was I editorializing? You are way too much. Dang I'm going to skip okay. the first one on the next one because you like it so much. I'm going to go to the second one, which is going to be super confusing for you. Um, I'm going to jump ahead to the JAMA Open Network. Deftera Rios, randomized control trial, evaluated the effect of treatment with colchicine. No, no, you need to go back to the first page, though. Okay. Um, so it looks at colchicine in patients. They did have a lower rate of clinical deterioration by using the colchicine. However, there was no significant differences with other things, cardiac out- outcomes, inflammatory bar- biomarkers. But Again, they're looking at all the things that take away inflammation. Which is super cool. I'm just wondering why they haven't cooled people down. Just a thought. Anyway. So, you know, that decreases inflammation. So let's go to Pastorino. Wow, you figured out what I did there. Good yeah, job. Yeah, Pastorino. And this is, this is an emerging infectious disease. And this is cool because we keep arguing about, am I going to get sick getting gas and touching the gas pump? And these guys actually took uh, deposited liquid with SARS-CoV-2 on it. Be careful you don't spill that. Uh, and they put it on polystyrene plastic, aluminum, glass surfaces, and they evaluated for viral stability and infecti- infectivity. And, and you that- know, it would have been really good if you would have said infectivity correctly the first time after <laughs> your very strong and. And infectivity uh, for 96 hours. And the reason this is so fun is because over and over people keep saying, yeah, just because the RNA is there doesn't mean you can get it. And so we've we've been told over the last couple of weeks that it just doesn't matter, that you probably can't get it as much from touching stuff. But they observed the longest infectivity on plastic polystyrene surfaces. That's that little white cup you get hot cocoa in. <laughs> so, or coffee or whatever. So, so just keep that in mind. I'm sure more is going to come out. Yes. All right, jumping ahead. Tocilizumab. Ooh. Notice how I got to do that one because I can say that word. Lancet Rheumatology. Giraldi. Love it. Anyway, tocilizumab, reduced risk of infective mechanical ventilation or death in a retrospective study of 544 patients. However, so tocilizumab did re- reduce your risk of getting in, you know, innovated and reduced risk of dying. However, the people who got the tocilizumab did have increased risk of other infections. Yeah, it's like, oops, you don't have COVID, but you've got... MRSA. MRSA. No, but they don't say the outcomes of the patients who got these other infections. Like, was it a little cellulitis? They could throw some Bactromat and call it good. Mm. Or was it, you now have like flesh-eating bacteria? So we just got a couple left because I'm tiring out past my bedtime here. Uh, So Lapman et al., uh, this is a preprint. And this is actually interesting. Uh, It's a model based on Emory University, um, uh, kind of a medium-sized private university. And 
Basically, they found that if they did monthly and weekly screening for SARS-CoV, regardless of symptoms, that they could reduce cumulative incidents by 42 and 80% in students, respectively. So that's expensive because if you were testing everybody, you could get them out of circulation very quickly uh, and not let them spread it. You could actually drop it quite a bit. So I I think that's an interesting thought. Uh, You know, what are we going to do for screening at colleges when everybody gets back or schools? So just keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we're going to just skip this. Fancy name because we just don't have time. Okay, moving on. This is the last day. Sorry, it's taking forever. But again, back to this whole school thing, I think, right? Yes. yes. So this is stage at L. This is a preprint, not peer-reviewed, but I found this super interesting. So they looked at the Northern European countries, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Germany. How come Finland is not on this list? But anyway, they found that reopening of schools for all students in the countries with low community transmission, so Denmark and Norway, has not resulted in a significant increase in the growth of COVID cases. However, return of most students to school in countries with higher level of community transmission, so Germany, had an increased transmission among students, but not staff. So I think we're going to have a lot of these studies, especially as different parts of the world have schooling at different times, to see, you know... Especially, I think in the next month, everybody is starting to look at what's going to happen this fall. So, well, there was a lot. There was some that we read earlier that said that the younger children don't shed as much. So, that may have something to do with that. But that you're less likely to get it from a kid than you are from another adult. Right. You skipped. I just skipped one. Yep, you did. Do you want me to go for it? Um, So, one quick thing on HIV, and there's been a lot about HIV. Yeah. Back? No, flip it over. Oh, you did that. Oh. Yeah, I'm right this time. Oh, I didn't circle that one. Just a quick thing on HIV. Um, They had this antiviral therapy, the ART regimen that's that's used. And interestingly, it has a difference um, between the the other... now I'm all messed up. You, you see, depending on the treatment regimen of HIV patients, some yes. did well and some had no difference, yeah. and some did worse. Yeah, and so the regimen makes a big difference in how you do with HIV and COVID. The good so, news is, is there's probably an infectious disease doctor already involved in the care. Yeah. Okay. Go with a MAC then. MAC. So this just really quickly looking at this BioCredit COVID antigen test for SARS-CoV-2 antigen. So it's a rapid half-hour test. Very. Low sensitivity versus <laughs> everything else. So, I mean, 29%. 29%. I mean. Well, here's the deal. I am opening a new business. I'm going to call it Kurt Med. And basically, I, if you call me, I will flip a coin and tell you whether you have COVID. And your I'm, chances. I'm 50-50 on that. And this one's only 29%. So I'm almost twice as good as this test. <laughs> <laughs> Almost, but so basically this didn't prove, I mean, it's a good idea and I think it's good to have studies that don't necessarily pan out the way you want them to because you know it doesn't work, but 29%. Yeah. I'm just all I'm going to say. Rokes. Two left. Rokes et al. And this is actually in Frontiers in Medicine from Alaska. <laughs> no, that's not true. It's France. Um, but anyway, they uh, they modeled the COVID-19 epidemic in France and they estimated that this lockdown reduced the effective reproduction number by a factor of seven. So the R not dropped by a factor of seven uh, just from the lockdown. And that really only 3.7% of the population, because they locked down so well, 
would be infected by the beginning of May. Now, this again is far below what you need for herd immunity. If we can get herd immunity from COVID, it has to be roughly 40 to 60%, they're saying. so. Well, I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that people are saying, oh, let's lock down, lock down, lock down. And then when you open up, the cases all go up. Because the whole point of lockdown is not to have people not get it. It was to get the healthcare system ready to handle it and have enough ventilators right so okay last one i love this so cadmium in the journal of pathogens and immunity evaluation of ultraviolet sea light for rapid decontamination of airport security bins in the era of sars-cov-2 like best title ever so they looked at uv light for 10 20 and 30 second cycles one inch above these plastic airport bins so was it above the whole bin or above the bottom part of the bin? No idea. Because the bins are, you know, however many inches deep. So part of the bin was, anyway. Yeah. Anyway. So you could lay in the bin and get a tan. <laughs> for 10, 20, or 30 seconds. But anyway, it reduced the contamination for both MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, and multiple viruses used that, that they're using to, like, resemble SARS-CoV-2. The 30-second cycle met criteria for decontamination of both organisms. So the 10 and 20-second was not long enough with this UV light. You need 30 seconds UV light to decontaminate against both MRSA and things they're pretending are COVID. Wow. That was <sighs> a busy week. There was a lot more articles this week than last week. Yes, and I there won't be as many next week just with the holiday. Yep, short week. So we thank everybody for listening. We're going to let the band... Warm up. Wake up. Wake up. up. Yeah, you talked a lot. So, yeah, and I think uh, this week we have a little uh, long-term care talk. uh, On Tuesday. And medications from everybody's favorite, Chris Hagen. Yeah, and so Chris Hagen will also be on talking about the newest med updates. See what he thinks about dexamethasone and tocilizumab. Yeah, he should have the newest stuff. So so I guess uh, thanks uh, for listening again. Sorry it went a little long. Heather tends to be quite chatty. All right, go for it. Battle legs, please.
Just to love, so to 